All right, you are going to need your Bible open this morning. Uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Corinthians, and we're going to try and be very, very brave this morning and actually make two points rather than the traditional one point. And they won't start with the same letter, um, but I hope you'll be able to manage that. All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this collection of writings. Thank you for the words of Paul to the Corinthians that we can have, that we can examine, and in doing so, reflect on ourselves. Lord God, help us this morning in what we read to understand your identity, to understand what Paul wrote and and why, and to understand how we can take these words and apply them to our own life and be transformed more and more into your holy people, your people who are set apart, who are supposed to represent you, to be like salt and light and yeast in the world. Lord God, I ask that you would Help each one of us this morning to bring whatever week we have had to you right now. As we've been doing through our singing and our worshipping this morning, through our giving and our sharing around the table of communion this morning. Lord God, now would you speak to us again, more yet. Amen. Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to recap a little bit and then we're going to jump in because it is going to be thick and heavy this morning. Most of what Paul has been writing to the Corinthian church about is wrapped up in this word, which I'm going to ask Stella to say for us this morning. Thank you. Yep. So the the If, if you get to the end of this morning, if you get to the end of this morning and you have, you have somehow missed what Paul is talking about, you catch up with Stella. She's on it, right? She's got it. The building up of the body of Christ. This is the one thing that Paul is measuring, it seems, again and again and again in different ways, the behavior of this group of people, the Corinthians. He's measuring them by this. So we're going to pick up reading from verse 13. Uh, we're going to go through to, I think, verse 33 this morning. Um, and then we're going to make a couple of very simple, straightforward observations, and we're going to try and let them sink in. So please read with me. Have your Bible open. Um, this is uh, an NIV that we've got up here on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, 
but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. Uh, And we talked about this, that Paul puts on the radar of the Corinthian church that not everyone gets what you're doing. We need to have in mind that people are going to turn up in gatherings of, of Christians who are inquiring, who have questions, who, who, who aren't a green light, they're an orange light. Going on, verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, the ecclesia, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. And the Lord is written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church, the whole ecclesia comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their heart are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And we had a vegetable help us out last week. Who remembers what it was? Cucumber. cucumber. And we, we talked about this, this um, usage of, of cucumbers in the pickling process, that they need to have this initial experience of being dunked in hot water because it opens up the, the, the pores of the skin or something like that. I don't know. Sounds like a, a, a makeup commercial. And then they need to be immersed in the brine. They need to be immersed in the vinegar. And the process that happens after the initial experience is actually a different process. And the word that's used around this is bapto and baptizo. And this idea that something which brings a person into radical, uh, confrontational contact with the person of God is not necessarily then the thing which they need to continue the work of transformation. Paul goes on, and here is uh, Nicander of Colophon. He goes on, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? So in light of everything that Paul has talked about, about how when they get together and it's just not functioning particularly well, in light of the word which I'll mispronounce, uh, later on, um, the, the building up word, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the ecclesia may be built up. And I'll tell you in a minute why I'm using the word ecclesia. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak. One at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the ecclesia and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. 
And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the ecclesia of the Lord's people, or the holy ones, as in all the ecclesia of the holy ones, agios. All right. Yeah, I got that one wrong too. So, right now I'm going to give you 30 seconds to talk to the person next to you, and you need to have a quick little conversation about how on earth verse 28 works. Verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the ecclesia and speak to himself and God. Okay, you have 30 seconds, chat to the person next to you. Try and figure out how this was actually going to play out in the Corinthian church. Verse 28. I'll give you 60 seconds, how about that? I'm going to interrupt you in a moment. Okay. Thoughts, verse 28. This this is practical instructions for a group of people. So, and this also tells us something of Paul's expectation of how this particular gift would have played out in the Corinthian church. What do we think? What might have happened? Ideas, thoughts. You're allowed to call out. Sorry? Praying in silence? How, how do you find out if there's an interpreter? What an interesting question. To go, you know, Paul talks earlier that someone can pray and then someone prays that they receive an interpretation. And it seems to suggest there's something chronological that that someone speaks in tongues and then the person prays for an interpretation. Here, Paul is saying, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet. How do you find out if there's an interpreter first? What an interesting question. See, these things are supposed to kind of slot into our thinking to go, actually, maybe our understanding of the way that this gift functions, maybe it's a little bit different when we actually go back to the Scriptures and have a look. That there's something here that Paul is going, you know what, if the Lord has placed a word on your heart that is in tongues, glossa, then how do you go and actually find someone in the body of Christ who has a gift of interpretation first? We're going to talk about this in just a minute. Um, What do we think about Paul's recommendation here? Because Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's saying, actually, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak. How would we go, Kerrang Baptist Church? If if every single week there were two or at the most three people who spoke in tongues and then there was an interpretation, some of us would probably be a little bit uncomfortable with that. Some of us would probably go, oh, no, no, that's too much. That's excessive. That's excessive. Paul here is saying, no, 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 that's reasonable. Paul's expectation of what it was like to be in 
in an assembly of people who are pursuing God is a little bit different to ours. See, it's easy sometimes for any one of us to get used to what we are used to and that we do things the way we do it because we like it and we're comfortable with it and it and it fits with our culture, it fits with our personality and everyone is kind of on the same page and sometimes it takes a, a visit to somewhere where they do things very, very different to go, actually, the way that the people of God function is is expansive and extraordinary. I'm still allowed to love the way that we do it here, but I need to remember that God is bigger than just the way that that we do it. There, there are churches and, and groups of Christians all over the state of Victoria who never speak English in their services. I've told you this story before. The very first time that I traveled overseas, um, really to, to be involved in any kind of missional stuff was Uganda, and it was 2005, and I had the, the dumbest, stupidest thought for the first time in my life when we rocked up in this little village and there was already already church going on and it had been going on for hours and hours and hours, and I walked on and I went, the Lord speaks Ugandan. I hadn't, yeah, I'd never had that thought before. He doesn't just speak English. Wow. We need to talk about this word ecclesia. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it records the words of Jesus. Jesus has just asked his, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. He says, you are the Savior. And Jesus talking, and depending on the commentator, either about Peter himself or about Peter's testimony, he says, you, you are Peter, and on this rock, perhaps Peter, perhaps his testimony, on this rock I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We have to talk about ecclesia because it makes so much sense of what's going on in Corinthians. Jesus does not say to his followers, I will build my temple. The temple was the main way that the people of God worshipped. Jesus does not say, I will build my temple. Jesus does not say, I will build my synagogue, which was the second religious institution. Jesus uses this word, I will build my ecclesia. And this is the word that we find turning up in the rest of the New Testament. And this is the ecclesia. You can look it up on Wikipedia and read all about it and find actually good resources apart from Wikipedia. But it's an all right starting point. Let me read to you a little bit about the Ecclesia. Some of you, I've, I've, I've kind of grenaded in some copies of, of this book. Great book. A uh, bunch of stuff in there I disagree with, but it's a good book. The Ecclesia was not a religious institution. Jesus deliberately uses this word, um, the Ecclesia was developed as a ruling assembly of citizens in the Greek democracy to govern its city-states. So the Jewish people who are under persecution from Rome and the Roman Empire, which took over from the Grecian states, Rome has this thing that it does called ecclesia. And you'll see here it has up to about 6,000 citizens who are involved in the ecclesia. The general public in Jesus' day understood ecclesia to be a secular institution and the governmental system it represented. We find an example of this in Acts chapter 19. 
So the Apostle Paul's associates, Gaius and Aristarchus, are dragged to the theatre in Ephesus, which was a Roman colony, because the silversmiths have complained about them. And what happens then is the, the city clerk comes out and the city clerk dismisses this rabble and says, no, 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 if you want... If you actually want to, to settle anything further with them, it must be settled in a legal ecclesia. And after he had said this, this is the clerk speaking here, verse 38 through 41, the clerk dismisses the ecclesia. This word is used in the New Testament to literally mean assembly. And up until the King James translation of the Bible, this word ecclesia was translated as gathering or assembly. And when that word began to be exchanged for the word church, it's a little bit difficult sometimes because when we think of church, we often think of buildings and perhaps robes and candles and bishops and systems. But the word ecclesia was originally a very, very controversial word. Jesus does not say, I will build my temple or I will build my synagogue. He does not say, I will build a worldwide network of synagogues. Jesus chooses a term that in the Roman Empire meant a government institution. So what we see in the Ecclesia is that if you want to be involved, you need to be a, uh, a male more than 18 years of age. Um, ideally, you will have done some military service. And there is a particular kind of, uh, of Ecclesia which functions um, elsewhere in the Roman Empire. So this idea of ecclesia is basically any gathering of Roman citizens, even two or three. It's called a conventus. And what happens is that if you are in a distant corner of the Roman Empire and you are a Roman citizen and you bump into another Roman citizen where two or three are gathered, conventus as a form of ecclesia is formed. And the rule and reign and the power and the ethos of Rome is present amongst the two or three of you, and you are to treat one another as citizens of Rome. This is why there's such um, concern when they find out after they've already beaten Paul that he's a Roman citizen, because he is part of the ecclesia and he should have been treated as part of the ecclesia. So in the New Testament, when we come across this word, ecclesia, we need to have an understanding that people, as we've said before, were meeting in each other's homes and that this was the concept they operated with. We are meeting in people's homes and we are God's ecclesia. We are the, the ecclesia of the holy ones. And in their mind, there was not an allegiance to a building like a synagogue. That where the ecclesia met, that became a sacred space. And if they met in a paddock, that was a sacred space. If they met on a mountain, that was a sacred space. If they met in someone's home, that was a sacred space. Wherever they met, the rule and reign of God was present. This makes sense to us when we think then about Jesus saying that his kingdom would be like yeast that infiltrates the dough and transforms it. It should not surprise us that when we look around the world at the moment, that forms of Christianity that are yeast-like, that is dispersed, that are incredibly mobile, that perhaps are not as systematized as, as we enjoy. But these other forms of ecclesia where, where two or three gathered, that these, this is where we see the fruit of the kingdom of God spreading rapidly. We see it happening across Asia. We see it happening across Africa. 
that the power of the kingdom of God seems to flourish where the kingdom is most yeast-like. If Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia, then we have this very um, perhaps confronting idea that what Jesus had in mind might be different to what we have experienced. I love the established church. I've told you I love Christian architecture. I love Christian art. I love our worship services. I am a churchamaholic, and I have been my entire life. But when Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, it means that my my desire needs to be for Jesus' ecclesia to function. And I need to measure my expectations against the words of Christ. Am I wanting, am I wanting a synagogue experience in a one-and-a-half-hour window on a Sunday morning and that's all I want? Or am I wanting to be part of his ecclesia, which is maybe more radical than that, maybe bigger than that, maybe scarier than that? The ecclesia can happen 24-7. The ecclesia can function anywhere. The ecclesia is not just in a particular place. It is out there in the marketplace. It is on the street corners. It is around people's kitchen tables. Big idea number one, the ecclesia this, when we understand this concept, it makes sense of the words of Paul here, that he says, you know what, everything has to be done orderly. It's because when the Ecclesia got together, it was actually kind of messy. And here he is introducing this idea of going, actually, we need to be orderly. When everyone gets together, don't just have it be a rabble. It makes sense of verse 28. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the Ecclesia and speak to himself and to God. It makes sense that, that we can then have interruptions here. So verse 30, if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. It's in blue there because it's the exact same word here as keep quiet in verse 28. And when we get into the last section of chapter 14, again, we find that there is a third group that Paul talks to about keeping a lid on speaking in the church, and we'll get into that next week. But we can see then that Paul is giving instructions to an incredibly disorganized assembly. Paul here is giving structure and order to what was a very disorganized assembly. And he he comes down here in verse 33 and he states the identity of God is that God is a God of order. Kind of obvious point number one, we need to know that Paul's instructions make sense in light of the ecclesia. That's point number one. Point number two is this. Paul calls people prophets. In the book of Romans, Paul uses a particular word to refer to the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, And he talks saying uh, the law and the prophets, and he uses this title. He says that the prophets were killed, and he uses this title. And then he says um, that the prophets promised the coming of the Messiah, and he uses this title. And here in Corinthians, Paul uses the exact same word, and he refers to these people in the Corinthian church as prophets. We need to let that idea sink in just for a minute, that Paul refers to these people in a way that this is a title. He's not saying people who operate in a prophetic gift. He's actually saying prophets. That is an incredibly uncomfortable idea because um, what do we know about Paul first and foremost? 
We know that Paul is a Jew and that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he trained under Gamaliel. We find that out in Acts 22, that he is highly educated, that Paul knows the Old Testament boundaries of what a prophet was. We're going to read some of those in just a moment. But Paul uses this language attributing the same title that he uses for Old Testament prophets to describe people sitting in the Corinthian church. And do we honestly think that Paul would misuse that term? This is the phrase, or this is the term that he uses. We're going to have a look at some. Deuteronomy 18. This is some of what we find in the Old Testament about prophets. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. A prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. This is Moses talking because he's about to clock off and he's talking to, to the people about what will happen after this. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6, we find this. Um, the servant, this is the servant of Saul, uh, replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. This became the measure of whether someone was actually a prophet of God. Um, we're going to have a read of, uh, of a couple of these. Write these down, go home and have a look. Let's, um, let's have a look at the Jeremiah one. So grab your Bible. I'm not going to have the words up here on the screen. And you're going to need to chase me into Jeremiah. He is one of the major prophets, which means he wrote a whole bunch, which makes him easier to find if you're flicking through your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 23, going to read from verse 25. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 25. This is the Lord speaking. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of those lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name, just as their ancestors forgot my name through Baal worship. Let the prophet who has a dream recount the dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully, that there is an interaction that happens between the two. For what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Therefore, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. Yes, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare the Lord declares. Indeed, I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies, yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least, declares the Lord. Again, that idea of building people up. Verse 33, when these people or a prophet or a priest ask you, what is the message from the Lord? Say to them, what message? I will forsake you, declares the Lord. If a prophet or a priest or anyone else claims this is a message from the Lord, 
I will punish them and their household. This is what each of you keeps saying to your friends and other Israelites. What is the Lord's answer? Or what has the Lord spoken? But you must not mention a message from the Lord again, because each one's word becomes their own message. So you distort the words of the living God, the Lord Almighty, our God. This is what you keep saying to a prophet. What is the Lord's answer to you? Or what has the Lord spoken? Although you claim this is a message from the Lord, this is what the Lord says. You use the words. This is a message from the Lord. Even though I told you, you must not claim this is a message from the Lord. Therefore, I will surely forget you and cast you out of my presence along with the city I gave to you and your ancestors. I will bring on you everlasting disgrace, everlasting shame that will not be forgotten. God takes really seriously that he is being misrepresented by people who are claiming to speak on his behalf. Ezekiel chapter 13. Flick over a little bit with me. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the breaches in the wall to repair it for the people of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle on the day of the Lord. Their visions are false and their divinations are lie. Even though the Lord has not sent them, they say, the Lord declares, and expect him to fulfill their words. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because of your false words and lying visions, I am against you declares the sovereign Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will not belong to the council of my people or be listed in the records of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Because they lead my people astray, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. When the wall collapses, People, will people not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, In my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind. In my anger, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it and you will know that I am the Lord. So I will pour out my wrath against the wall and against those who covered it with whitewash. I will say to you, the wall is gone, and so are those who whitewashed it, those prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own imagination. Prophesy against them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the women who sew magic charms on all their wrists and make veils of various lengths for their heads in order to ensnare people. Will you ensnare the lives of my people but preserve your own? You have profaned me among my people for a few handfuls of barley and scraps of bread. By lying to my people who listen to lies, you have killed those who should not have died and have spared those who should not live. 
can keep reading and reading and reading if you want to. Get the picture. God is unhappy when people claim to be his representatives and they are not. And Paul says in the Corinthian church, there are prophets. Big idea. And the thought sits, does Paul not get how screwed up the Corinthians are? Does he actually not understand how messy these people are? How likely is it that the Corinthians are going to actually get prophecy wrong? In this letter, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has already corrected them and told them off because they were celebrating an incestuous relationship. When they were doing communion, gathering around the Lord's table, some people were going hungry and some people were getting drunk. They were misusing this gift of tongues. There were people that were turning up to the ecclesia dressed provocatively, wanting to get attention rather than to give it to God. These Corinthians are quite screwed up. Their church family get-togethers were dysfunctional, and Paul says that in those gatherings, some of them are prophets. And Paul uses the exact same word that he uses in Romans. Same word. Same title. We need to understand what is happening. Verse 29 says this, Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Do we think Paul knows the Corinthians are going to mess this up? Yeah. If anyone knows how much the Corinthians mess stuff up, it is the Apostle Paul. He knows how much they're going to mess stuff up. But Paul does not say, everyone stop prophesying. That is not Paul's response. That might be my response. That might be your response. But when we read the New Testament, that is not Paul's response. Paul knows that these people are going to have the gift of the prophetic functioning and that they are going to get it wrong. And he says this, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. This is Paul's response. Paul does not say anywhere that this kind of prophecy is a Diet Coke version of the Spirit of God genuinely speaking. Paul does not shy away from saying that the Spirit who spoke through Ezekiel and through Jeremiah, the Spirit which was upon Moses and upon David, this is the same Spirit that you and I have received. This is the same Spirit that was present in Corinth. Paul affirms the source of this act of grace as genuine, And Paul says that we need to be discerning. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, we see this promise that when the Christ comes, that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. We we see Peter referring to this in Acts chapter 2. When weird Holy Spirit stuff starts happening, that he says this is what was promised, that your sons and daughters would prophesy, your old men would dream dreams, your young men would have visions. This is a a very, very uncomfortable idea for us because Paul here does not say that this act of prophecy is going to put these people on the same tier as Scripture. 
Nowhere does Paul say, you know what, write down everything that these prophets say and add it to the scriptures. He never says that. But Paul doesn't shy away from saying that this is real. This was something that the Lord was actually doing. This is something that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is still as active today, more active, because the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. So what do we do with this? If someone comes to me and someone goes, Bob, you know what? I'm a prophet. I'm incredibly wary uh, because of how seriously God takes being misrepresented. I'm incredibly wary when someone goes, you know what? I really feel like God has put this on my heart. You know, I really feel like this is something not just that has originated in me, but this is something which I feel has originated with the Lord and that he has given to me to do something with. And I go, okay, how do I weigh carefully what they say? We come back to the word as we read a moment ago. Anything which someone says that that they believe that God has put on their heart is brought back to the scriptures. The spirit of God will not disagree with the Spirit of God. He knows what he is doing. If if someone says, all right, Bob, I, I really feel like this is something that the Lord has put on my heart, then I look at the fruit of the person's life. Because if the Spirit of God is in us, the Holy Spirit in us bears Holy Spirit fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I've missed one. What's the one? Goodness. If someone goes, oh, you know, and we've had people turn up here over the last few years. We've had people come through the door who have had different ways of approaching this uh, and people going, you know what, I'm a prophet. And I'm like, okay, I'm looking for love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or gentleness or self-control and I'm not seeing much fruit on the tree. That changes how I measure what comes out of that person's mouth. Every word that comes out of their mouth is going to be measured against Scripture anyway, but you go looking for Holy Spirit fruit. What we see in Ephesians chapter 4 is that when Paul writes, he says, when Christ ascended, he led some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. It's often referred to as the fivefold ministry gifts that God calls people and he gives these people as gifts to the body. And I go, okay, if someone says, all right, I I feel like I'm operating in this way, then I go, okay, tell me about where you are plugged in. Tell me about who owns you. Tell me about where you're attached to the body of Christ. Tell me whose feet you are washing. Tell me where the injured people are that that you're engaging with and, and, and ministering to because that's part of being in the body. If someone says, you know what, I have this word from the Lord, but they they don't want to be subject to any authority, if the words that come out of their mouth are not particularly loving, which is sometimes the case, people go, I'm just going to tell the truth, and you go, okay, it says here the word of a prophet is subject to a prophet. You don't have to be rude. All right, Lord, help us to, to do this stuff. The, the word Paul uses is diacrino, which I'm mispronouncing, literally to discern, to weigh carefully what is said. This is what Paul puts in place for the Corinthian church. And if the person speaks and they are completely off track, stop listening to them. It is that simple. In the same way that, um, that Moses says the person is being presumptuous, the person is being presumptuous. A person can be completely convinced and they can be completely wrong at the same time. The measure is the scriptures and the measure is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the person's life. 
the question is raised or jokingly sometimes to go, you know what, can we do to New Testament prophets what they did to Old Testament prophets if they're wrong? Can we take them outside the city walls and stone them to death? In Christ, the judgment for your sin is not on your head. It is on Christ. That's the good news of the cross. And if there is someone who is misrepresenting God, even if they are utterly convinced that they are representing God faithfully, if someone is misrepresenting God and they belong to Jesus Christ, then we are to act with wisdom and discernment, but but the judgment on that person is in the Lord's hands. We are called to be discerning. We are called to weigh carefully what they say. I know that for some of us in this room this morning, this is outside of what we have experienced. Um, This is a bit different to what we have inherited in terms of our faith. So we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the Corinthian church back in the first century when all of these weird and wonderful things were happening, when people weren't really knowing what to do or, or how to be orderly. We need to understand what Jesus meant when he said, I will build my ecclesia. And we need to remember that maybe, just maybe, what the Lord does is bigger than our experience. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to wrap up this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that you said you would build your ecclesia. Thank you that you said that you put the parts in the body as you desire to. And Lord God, where these pieces of grace function Please give us such wisdom. Give us such wisdom. And, Lord, let us be people of the word. Let us be people who are able to measure and to evaluate things that are said. Help us to be discerning, to know whether it is originated in the person or whether it is originated from you. We know that a word from you cuts through flesh divides even between spirit and flesh, spirit and soul. Lord God, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask for conviction of sin and righteousness. We ask that you would illuminate the scriptures. We ask that you would transform our thinking, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord God, please inspire us to pray for one another. Please help us to be sensitive to the leading and the guiding of your spirit, knowing that your spirit has been poured out on all flesh as you promised it would be. Lord God, help us to be patient with one another. Where there are people who are getting things wrong, help us to be patient. Help us to be wise and to be loving. And Lord God, if we have a moment where we feel that you have put something so heavily on our heart, Lord God, give us the boldness as well as the wisdom to act in humility and obedience. Help us to be your people. We we don't ever want to be in that place of misrepresenting you. Lord God, thank you that you are amongst us. Thank you that you are interested in us and that you would still have us be your ecclesia in Ganawara. Lord God, thank you. Amen.